You're listening to the Midwest Marketing Orange Hour Podcast with your host, Brett Matthijs. Okay, my first question right off the bat, do people still use the word weatherman? Like, is that a good term or a bad term or a, yeah, who cares term? They do still use it. It's, uh, it doesn't bother me, but when you're talking to a woman, I think it bothers them a little bit. I mean, it meteorologist is probably the best term to go with because we worked hard. We studied calculus and physics for two to four years. And it's, uh, we worked for the meteorologist title. So I think that's a thing that a lot of people enjoy, but I know the a simple term for people's weatherman or weather woman or something like that. Yeah, so that's kind of sure. just, that's a good point. You're going, you, you put a ton of time into studying mm-hmm. your craft and your trade. And so it's like, you've earned the title of meteorologist and yeah. not weatherman, like the weatherman. Um, it seems like an old timey term to me. <laughs> um, anyway, I'll have you introduce yourself to everybody who doesn't know who you are already. All right. My name is David Stradling. I am a, a meteorologist over at KEVM Black Hills Fox and Coda Territory News. Uh, you'll catch me mostly on Fox, but uh, when Mike Modrick is off, I'll fill in for him and do all four shows and everything like that, and sometimes a weekend. So you'll catch me wherever. <laughs> for sure. Are you more morning, afternoon, late night? You know, what, what news segment are you on? Or more, all of them? Yeah, more of the evenings. I do the six and the nine for Fox, and then sometimes the 5 30 and 10 on Coda, but. Yeah, I've done the mornings before at my last job and too early for me. <laughs> too early for sure, for sure. Sounds good. All right, my first question right off the bat is the Farmer's Almanac. Are you familiar with the Farmer's Almanac? Mm-hmm. Okay, this might be redundant, but for people who aren't, the farmer, Farmer's Almanac is like a periodical and they predict the weather for the entire year, sometimes even up to two years. And it's kind of like folklore type stuff. I got to consult my notes because I went on their website to see like what they consider their method for predicting a whole year's worth of weather. They say, you got to tell me if this is like complete just nonsense or if it actually (laughs) makes a little bit of sense. But they say it's an exclusive mathematical and astronomical formula that relies on sunspot activity, tidal action, planetary position, and many other factors and is 80 to 85% accurate. So for that, is it possible to forecast the weather for an entire year, or is this just like some guy just guessing? It's possible to give a estimated guess of what the year is going to be. Um, I don't believe it's the 80 to 85% accuracy rate that they claim, but because, uh, I mean, this winter they called for frigid and snowy for us. And for December, January, February, which are considered the three winter months, we were – Three degrees, almost three degrees, I think 2.8 degrees above normal. So it was a little warmer than normal. But the snow was almost nine inches above normal. But if you remember, in February, we had that big storm that gave us a lot of that extra snow or else we would have been pretty close to average there. So there are times when they could be accurate and predict something correctly. But there are other times, I mean, long-range forecasting is very difficult. One minor shift in something here or there can completely throw that forecast off. For sure. So when they're talking about like sunspot activity and tidal, you know, all this, is that something that you take into account when you're sitting down to go do like a forecast, like a seven-day forecast? Or is that just like kind of more out of left field? Sunspot, that is not something I typically look at when making a seven-day forecast. I, uh, do look at sunspot activity. I like to take photography. So active sunspots usually mean more aurora borealis in the nighttime. 
And so that's something I kind of keep an eye on for that, but I don't usually incorporate it into weather forecasting. So you're talking just like a little bit off base. You're saying you like photography and talking about Aurora Borealis at night. Is there a place in the Black Hills that you've gone where you've seen the northern lights or are we just too far south for that to happen? I actually went up to the Ormond Dam just east of Belfouche and I caught the northern lights there. I've, I've heard of people catching them out at the Badlands and really the main thing, you can see them here if it's strong enough. You just have to get out of the city light and kind of let your eyes adjust to the darkness and then see them if they appear. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of finding those dark sky places, mm-hmm. which there's actually darksky.net. is yeah. a super cool website to see where they have like certified places. I don't know if we have one in South Dakota where it's like a certified dark sky viewing area, but there is some that they say like is very good, kind of like by Belfouche there. Mm-hmm. So when you do sit down to like forecast, you know, seven day, 14 day, what is a reasonable amount of time that you personally feel like you can forecast the weather for? I think five days is where I feel extremely mm-hmm. accurate. We do have the seven day forecast and uh, there are times on the seven day where it can be very tricky for day five, six and seven as well, where it's okay, maybe this might happen. Some models are saying we're going to get a blizzard and then other models are like, nah, we're not going to get anything kind of like yesterday's storm, about this time last week, we were looking at the models and it was showing a one to two feet of snow for Rapid City. And obviously we wake up this morning and we have about a dusting, maybe up to an inch of very light, fluffy snow. But most of that storm missed us to the south. And so it's kind of something we take into account. We mentally take note of what the models are saying for a storm. Mention there could be something, but we also talk about how variable that is and how likely it is to change over the next couple of days. And we just uh, kind of keep an eye on that as we go throughout the forecasting and see how it ends up. For sure. So in this next question I ask, I want you to break it down first in like really simple terms that I'm <laughs> going to understand. And then next you can become like more in depth with your answer. So you sit down and you go, I'm going to forecast a five day forecast. What does that process look like? Like what are you looking at as you're moving through that process of forecasting the weather for the coming week? Yeah, so we have forecast models that give you temperature, precipitation, cloud cover, wind speed, all that kind of stuff, the general things that we want to know on a daily basis. And there's a lot of factors that do go into that. So a lot of it is just kind of I just jot down the numbers and kind of what the models are saying. And then I kind of look at the trends and see what it's been doing and kind of base my forecast off that, even if it's a little different than what they're saying right now. And a big factor, too, is the wind speed out here, especially in Rapid City, with a west wind, it could warm things up a little bit more because when the winds go down a slope, they warm up faster. And so that'll cause temperatures to be warmer than what models might say, depending on the sun angle. So this time of year, models may be a little cooler. They may say, oh, we're going to be 50 today. But because the sun angle is getting higher and higher as we get through spring, maybe gives us a little more heating and we get into the low to mid fifties and something like that. So there's a definitely a factor in that. And you were talking about how long we can really accurately predict. And I know a lot of news stations across the country are starting to trend towards a 10 day forecast. And I think I'm still keeping my seven, especially out here just because of how things change so quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So you touched on it a little bit. You're looking at the models. Can you walk people through, what models there are and mm-hmm. how they differ between each other, or are they fairly similar? 
They're mostly similar. We have the European model. It's kind of a higher resolution model, and it's based out of Europe. Um, it tells you just the basic everything you need to know. And then there's the American long-range model, which is called the GFS. And that model can forecast out to 14 days. And you have the North American model, which is another variation of the American model. But this one only goes out four days. And it's more of a higher resolution model to where it gives you a little more detail comparing to the higher range models. And then there's another version of the North American model. The basic one is 12 kilometer uh, grid scale. And the other one we look at is a three kilometer. So it's even a higher resolution. And that one is, I use more for severe thunderstorm forecasting because it can pinpoint where one of those small storms are going to pop up maybe in the Black Hills or out in the plains compared to a the Euro or GFS, which is what we call them. Um, out on the plains, it may just create like a bigger just blob of green rather than the three-kilometer North American model that gives you the reds and the storms and everything like that. So there's a lot of different ways we can use the models. There's a Canadian model that you can look into as well. And I like to look at as many as possible and kind of compare and see what they say, each one, and kind of get an idea of where each one's trending. If one's cold and the rest are warm, well, you can kind of throw the cold one aside and assume it's going to be warm with the majority there and figure with models they have equations, big calculus equations that are fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if there's one little thing in that equation that's off, then that's what's going to produce a much colder temperature compared to a much warmer temperature. Okay, for sure. Is there, uh, like, are there some meteorologists that are like, I only use this model, mm -hmm. or I only, like, they're very, they think that that model more accurately uh, predicts what's going to happen, and then there's... So is it more common that a meteorologist is going to be like, this is the one I use, or is it more common they're going to be like, I take from everywhere and kind of, you know, see what's going to happen? Within the weather community, we always say that the European's king. Okay. We call it the king euro because it's just, it's accurate more times than not compared to other models. I'm not saying the other models aren't good because they are, but each one has their own kind of forecasting method they're good with. And there are meteorologists that, live and die by one certain model compared to the other and everything like that. But uh, around here, it varies. Sometimes some models are doing very well. It just kind of depends. You just look at the previous day and kind of the previous week of what temperatures were to what one model or the other were saying here, and that just kind of is what you base your forecast off of and just go, okay, well, maybe this one's got a little more better idea compared to the others, and so... Interesting. That's so. That's probably what we're seeing. If you're flipping between, you know, you watch the weather on one channel, you mm -hmm. watch it on another, and it's a little bit different. That could be the reasoning behind that. Is one person is how they calculate it. Maybe one person is using a bunch of models. One person's only using one, and that's maybe where you get that little bit of a difference between stations when you're looking at that stuff. Yeah, each person has their own kind of different forecasting method. Not one person has the same method, basically. So. People look at things differently and take into account things differently. And so, yeah, that's how the forecast can be variable each day. And when snowstorms come, I notice people comment on social media, well, one person's saying this, another's saying this, you're saying this. And so, yeah, it just kind of it depends on the person and how they forecast and what they see. Hmm, that is wildly interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so we've heard it. Living in Rapid City, it's like Rapid City is very difficult 
to forecast the weather. It's like it's very, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. What makes a certain place more difficult than another place to predict the weather? Like, is there is it geographical? Is it geological? What is the factors at play there? A lot of it's the geography. With the Black Hills here, you have northeast Wyoming that's pretty flat. You have eastern Montana, North Dakota, east of the Black Hills, and Nebraska. All that's pretty flat. And so when you stick a, a, the Black Hills just right out of the ground, that's going to kind of mess with the physics of the weather here. And so certain weather patterns that go into the Black Hills, they have to kind of account for the sudden geographical change, and that's where the weather can change. And things go a little different for locations in the northern hills compared to the southern hills or why things form on a certain side versus not. So, yeah, the geography is definitely something to play. And I first started working out here in Rapid City in late, like I think it was December 2014. And about two months before I started, I saw an article on social media and someone did research and was like, looking at all the National Weather Service offices. So we have one here in Rapid City. There's one in Sioux Falls, Aberdeen, and kind of surrounding locations. And they were trying to see which forecast office was the most difficult. And Rapid City ended up being number one. So, Oh, really? Yeah. coming Is, is that across the entire nation or just South Dakota? In, in the United States. Oh, really? So yeah. you have just like, the as proven by science, <laughs> you have the most difficult job of any meteorologist. It's very tough here. Yes. Yeah. We have it tough here. And a lot of it's probably going to be for those near or in the mountains that are having difficulty with forecasting too. But I feel like here in Rapid City, the fact that it's just so flat everywhere and then all of a sudden, boom, the Black Hills kind of pop up. I feel like that's one of the main reasons why we're the most difficult. Okay. That's interesting. So I'm from Minnesota originally, which people who have listened to this podcast a lot are really sick of me saying that. <laughs> um, but when we were there, and when I was there, it's like very difficult to predict in Minnesota. And then I move here, and oh, it's very difficult to predict here. So I was like, is it just everywhere people are just like the weather is is difficult to predict, or is it it does make a difference? Obviously, like you're saying, a lot of people like to use the joke: if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes, and yep. you'll <laughs> that's like, like you'll like it or whatever. Like I, I heard that in Indiana all the time, and I was like, oh, that's so true. And then I moved out here, and then I was like, wow, it's actually really true here in Rapid City because the weather can just change at the snap of a finger. It can get really warm or really cold depending on what uh, kind of weather is going to be happening. And up in Spearfish, they actually have the world record. I was just going to bring that up. I was going to say, I was like, I don't know the statistics behind it, but I know it's the world record. If it's like two minutes, it went from, I mean, very cold to very warm. Two minutes, it went from, I think, four below zero up to 45 above zero. Which is just, does that seem like something that's physically possible or does that seem like someone's temperature gauge was broken and then that's what happened? Because two minutes and it changed 50 degrees. Yeah, a lot of it has to do, like I mentioned a little bit ago, those downslope winds where air warms much faster and you, uh, the Chinook winds, which usually happen around the mountains or in the hills and stuff, you get that downslope, you get a very strong wind, say 50 miles per hour, that's going to warm Temperatures up quickly as we're going down the hill, and that's going to create a big pool of warm air that's just going to slide right in really quickly. And so that's where you get that big change from four below with the cold air gets pushed to the north, and you get kind of that warmer air. So that's what kind of happened there, and it was very interesting. Man, I I would just be amazed to be there when that happened Mm -hmm. because that that was in the early 1900s, right? Yeah. It was just, I can't imagine what people were thinking at the time when they were like outside and shoveling snow. And then all of a sudden they're like, whoa. Yeah. Um, so kind of talking about that spearfish area, 
I've noticed, and I'm sure everyone watches the the news out here and the weather out here is like whenever there's a snowstorm, Deadwood. It's just like this little circle around Deadwood on the radar where it's like we might get two inches in Rapid City and they have 14 inches in mm-hmm. Deadwood. I've heard people refer to it as the snow belt. Is that a correct term or just like some wild term that people are pulling out of the air? But why does that happen in Deadwood of all? Like all the places in the hills, Deadwood always gets pounded with snow. Yeah, so I've talked a couple times about downslope warming temperatures up. But with Deadwood, lead up there, they get upslope. And so in the winter, you typically think of winds coming out of the north or northwest. And with the northern hills... When the winds come out of the north or northwest and they are moving towards the hills, once they hit the hills, they're forced to rise as they go up the geography terrain there. And once they rise, the temperature of the air parcel is going to cool off. And once it cools to the dew point, and the dew point's basically the temperature that the air and temperature needs to be to condense or form a water droplet or a cloud, and once it rises to that point, it's going to form clouds. And as air continues to rise, it's going to continue to add moisture. And that's going to be too heavy. And snow is going to form and fall. And so usually with that upslope flow there, that's where you get the snow to keep falling up in lead and Deadwood compared to Rapid City, the Southern Hills, or other locations. And so that's why they typically get hit harder than many other locations. And that's why Terry Peak picked a very good area to put a ski resort. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. That's for sure. Well, we're actually going to take a little breather, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about what got Dave interested. Do you go by Dave or David? or Either one's fine. Okay. My dad's name's David, so he usually goes by Dave, but okay. he's back in Indiana, so I go by whatever I hear. Okay, sounds good. We're going to talk about <laughs> David slash Dave's interest and in what got him started in meteorology. Hey guys and gals, it's Brett Matice, the host of the Midwest Marketing Podcast. I need you to do me a favor really, really quick. I promise you it won't take long. However you're listening to this here podcast, go on to iTunes, Stitcher, maybe you're just on our website, whatever it is, go give us a five-star rating. See those stars? There's going to be five of them. Just go to the one furthest on the right-hand side, click that one. Maybe write a few quick nice words about us. Unless you don't like us very much, then don't write anything at all. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Let's get back to listening. All right, so we were just talking in the break how fascinating this stuff is. For you, has it been fascinating for a long time? Is it something that you found later on, or have you just always been like, I want to be a meteorologist? I've always loved weather, but growing up, I never considered weather to be my career. So when I was 8, 9, 10, up to 15, 16, I watched the Weather Channel daily. And oh, really? Yeah. This is not probably a typical thing for someone that age. No, my friends would be like, let's go hang out. And while I did, <laughs> I do enjoy going out playing kickball or whatever we did back in the day. I just loved watching the Weather Channel, the severe weather coverage, the winter weather coverage, just the daily forecasts. Like my aunt, my grandpa, they'd all call me when I was young and they're like, hey, what's the forecast going to be? Because I knew I'd know exactly. My aunt lived in Cleveland for a little bit and then in Kentucky and my grandpa was in my hometown. But They'd call and just get a kick out of asking me what the weather is going to be. And it didn't really kick in that I was going to want to make a career out of this until about a year and a half into college. I uh, went to a local college and just took the general courses because I was not sure of what I wanted to do. And I tried one route and I didn't like it. And so I kind of sat down and thought, I was like, what do I enjoy? And I was just like, I love the weather. And so I emailed my advisor and they gave me a couple of colleges nearby and the rest is history. <laughs> oh, really? That's super cool. So when you have you gotten into like 
you do any of the storm chase and mm-hmm. stuff? You do. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Okay, so walk someone through like. So are you looking at your models and realizing like a tornado is coming here, and then you just haul ass and drive and and try to get there? Yeah, I uh, there's a lot that goes into for to storm chasing. You look at the forecast and kind of see that the weather is going to be good for storms, which other people may think is bad because they don't like storms, which yeah. is the majority. But um, yeah, there's a lot you look into it. And sometimes it's just you're kind of sitting around here and a storm pops up in the Black Hills and you're like, all right, let's just go out and see what this thing does since it's local and basically in your backyard. But there are other days where you can look at the forecast and I can be like, well, Colorado looks pretty good today. So I'm going to go down there and kind of see what happens there. But a lot of, I know there's a lot of shows and videos of storm chasers and you just see the tornado and it's just like, okay, or the cool storm clouds. And you're like, wow, that looks fun. But that's probably about 10 to 20% of an actual day of storm chasing. Yeah. The rest of the 80s just driving. <laughs> oh, yeah, just getting to where you need to go. Yeah, so you're driving to where the storms are. You're driving to where your target location is. So if northeast Colorado looked good to me, I'd maybe go up towards Fort Collins or somewhere out in the plains there and just kind of sit there and wait for storms to develop because a lot of it's driving, sitting, and waiting. And then once the storms happen, that's where chase mode is what we call it. Okay. You go into. And a lot of that from then is just you're looking at your radar and you're looking at a couple different variables within the radar. You can look at how tall the clouds are. You can look at the velocity. You can look at the what you typically see on TV where the rain is heavy or whatnot. And you can kind of just get an idea. There's something you can look at that shows the hail core in the storm. And usually ones with the big hail core or the strong storms that are going to keep going for a while. And those are the ones you typically want to go after, but also stay away at a Reasonable distance so you don't get hail damage. Yes. Um, so what constitutes, like, how, I don't know if this is how you measure a storm, but how big does a storm have, or how severe does a storm have to be for you to be like, I'm going to go chase that? I typically want to look, and if there is a decent tornado potential with the storms in a certain area, that's what's going to get me out there. I do enjoy storms that don't have tornadoes, too, because just the structure of the storms, you can kind of see the smoothness of the clouds. Sometimes it looks kind of like pancakes stacked up on top of each other with some stronger storms. And sometimes you'll see they kind of look like bubbles, but they're called mamatis clouds. And so it just kind of looks really cool seeing those two. So there's a lot of, to the storm that I enjoy, but seeing a tornado in an open field doing no damage is what you obviously want to see. Yeah, absolutely. With then like you said with Western South Dakota, there is a lot of areas where that's mm-hmm. possible, where it can just kind of rip through the plains and, mm-hmm. and not cause any damage to houses or homes um, or property or anything like that. So, man, that's just fascinating, the, the <laughs> storm chasing. So um, when you're looking and you're, and you're going for a storm, you, are you alone? Are you with another person? Does it kind of depend on you know mm-hmm. who can make it that day? It depends, yeah. Some days I'm alone. Usually if it's here in western South Dakota, close to the Black Hills, I don't have a problem going alone. But sometimes if it's going to Nebraska or Colorado or Wyoming, somewhere I'm not 100% familiar with, it's nice to have somebody to look at radar for you and also be able to kind of look at road the road network and see, okay, this you, we have an east road coming up so you can take that and kind of go parallel with the storm or a north-south road or whatever kind of 
what you're looking for. So it's sometimes it's nice to have people with you. Yeah. I feel like I'd be doing a big disservice to our listening <laughs> audience if I didn't ask if like any close calls with like getting a little too close at times, or are you pretty careful about staying back? I'm mostly careful. I I haven't seen a lot of tornadoes. I being that I only typically can chase on weekends since Saturday, Sunday are my days off. And I work evenings when the storms are happening. So I usually only get about a two day window. Most of my stuff's local and we don't get a lot of tornadoes out here compared to say Oklahoma or Texas, obviously. Yep. But uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't had a lot of close calls. I mean, the closest call I've probably had was when my car was parked at my apartment parking lot and got totaled by hail. Oh, <laughs> which is common out here. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I got, I had that happen to me last summer, but I haven't had really any, any close calls to where I felt uncomfortable. Hopefully it stays that way. Yeah, for sure. That's good. <laughs> um, for a, a young adult who's like, man, this is a fascinating conversation, which I'd assume there's going to be a couple of them. What is their route if they would like to pursue meteorology as a career choice like you have? Like, what's the most typical route that you see? Is it the college education route? Is it just getting in with a TV station and learning the ropes? Like, how would someone go about that? Yeah, college is going to be the way you want to go. A uh, four-year degree, if you want to go into TV, that's kind of the main route people take. Uh, there are some things outside of TV that might require a master's or doctorate, but we can get into that later. But, yeah, if you're looking just to kind of get into weather, and you're still in high school or maybe you're even younger and you know that's what you want to do, don't hesitate to reach out to someone on TV and email them or something and kind of just say, hey, I'm interested in weather. And they'd, I'd have no problem chatting with somebody if they wanted to email me. Many other meteorologists don't have a problem kind of chatting along, chatting along or anything. Do you guys do like a, a job shadow? Mm-hmm. Would you like be open to something like that? Yeah, we have people that come in and job shadow for a day and – if you're in college, you can do an internship with the station and kind of see what goes on day to day for a couple of months and all that. So, yeah. For sure. Very cool. Um, so the four-year degree, is it a degree in meteorology or is it a degree in something else? You know, because I know you talked about physics and, and mm-hmm. all calculus and all this type of stuff. Yeah. So where I went to college, Ball State University, that's in Muncie, Indiana, which is about an hour north of Indianapolis, the, in the central part of the state. Yeah, go Cardinals. Yes, chirp, chirp <laughs> is what they say there. But uh, the it was a geography degree, and the, there were four options. I think one was travel, tourism, one was kind of uh, natural resources, and then the fourth option was meteorology, meteorology and climatology. And so I went with the fourth route, obviously. And so other places call it atmospheric science, and it just that depends. sounds fancy. Yeah, that's they a, fancy that's a that fancy one up title. a little bit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you can go. Um, just depends on what school you go to. I think atmospheric science is more the sciency, non TV kind of colleges, and there are that kind of focus on a broadcast or maybe research or something like that. So for sure. So like you talked about a little bit, there are routes in meteorology outside of you know being a, a TV you know on air meteorologists, what are some of those that are maybe like more outside of the public eye? Yeah. So the National Weather Service, that's probably one of the other popular ones. That's the government job. And a lot of those jobs likely require master's, if not doctorate degrees. So that's more of those people that want to go that route, know that they're going to be into in college for a little while. So um, when I was in school, a couple of friends, I 
first met in college, they were saying how it's difficult to kind of get those jobs. And so they're like, we suggest going the TV route. And so I got my four-year degree and TV usually has a lot of job openings for introductory students and stuff. And then you can just advance your career after you finish a contract and whatnot. But there's the National Weather Service there. You can do some kind of behind-the-scenes stuff. There's research jobs. Some people storm chase and collect data if they try to put stuff in the path of the tornado so it can collect it and they can research how tornadoes form and all that kind of stuff. And so there's a lot of math involved in that and kind of Wait, so you're, you're saying that people are going in just like how you put a penny on a train track and mm-hmm. then have the train run over, they're doing that, but with a tornado, they're putting like collection, like data collection devices and hoping that the tornado runs it over. Yes. What does a device like that look like? Like how big is that? Is it a box? I'm, I'm picturing like a box, but I'm sure that's not right. <laughs> yeah, there are some devices. It's, they're circular devices, but they form into a shape of a cone but it's a very shallow cone because you want as less friction and resistance as the wind's blowing so it doesn't blow it away or shift the path or whatever. So you want to have it stay on the ground, be heavy enough, have a bunch of scientific data so you collect temperature, air pressure, uh, what moisture's in the air, wind speed, all that kind of stuff. And uh, the storm chasers go directly in the path of the storm, set it down, and just get out of there. Man, that seems wildly dangerous. Mm -hmm. How close, maybe, I don't know if you've done this or experienced it, but like how close do they need to get? Like, can they predict exactly where that tornado is going to head in its path? So they're kind of like there well before, or is it kind of like, like put it down and get the heck out of there? Yeah, a lot of these guys that uh, do the instruments in the path of the tornado, they've been storm chasing for a while. And so they kind of have a feel of where the storm's going. You can kind of look at radar, too, and get a very good idea of what path the storm is taking. And you can kind of set a target point and be like, okay, I'm going to set this device here. There are significantly more misses than there are hits. That would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a lot of times because, I mean, sometimes tornadoes are only 50 yards wide. And guessing that two miles away is nearly impossible but sometimes you'll get lucky and be able to nail where it hits yeah so i would assume the tornado picks up the instrument and mm-hmm. then does it have you know takes it wherever that tornado is going does it have the gps tracking mm-hmm. thing in it so then they go find it afterwards and, and collect all the data that it, it got yeah it has a parachute in it so when it's up in the air and it starts to fall it can like detect it's falling and it'll have a parachute so it doesn't land and do damage or get damaged itself and it has GPS so they can, once the storm's over and once the day's over, they can go back maybe the same day, the next day, or depending on the storm pattern, if they can't get to it within the next week, they'll know where it's at and they can get it. I feel like that would be a real tough thing if someone did that and it landed in like some rancher's field Mm -hmm. and then you go out there and grab it and the rancher's like, what in the world are you doing? And then you'd have to explain that you put something in a tornado and he'd think you're totally full of shit. (laughs) But... (laughs) For sure. So you talked a little bit about, you know, storm chasing is one of your hobbies. And I know we actually ran into each other mm-hmm. what, about a month ago, probably hiking up Little Devil's Tower. Yeah. Uh, my dog came and barked at you. <laughs> um, so is there any, you know, I obviously enjoy hiking. Is there other stuff that you do do enjoy outside of work, like some hobbies you have? Mm-hmm. Uh, hiking, like you said, I enjoy photography along with hiking. So it kind of goes one and one together there. Um, backpacking, something I've recently picked up. I really enjoy doing that. Uh, camping, anything outdoors like that. But some other hobbies I have, I storm chase like we talked about. That's fun there. 
I like to cook. I like to listen to music, go to concerts. I like to travel and just kind of stay active. But there are also other times I just like to stay in and maybe watch Netflix or Hulu or something. Yeah, you got to have some time to Exactly, yeah. Yeah, the backpacking. Where are you going backpacking at? Um, I've been backpacking twice. I went up in, when I was in Indiana, I went up to northern Michigan. It was Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore. Yeah. I went up there and I backpacked a little bit of that for my first time ever. And then last year I got out and I went to the Wind River Range and I hiked Circa the Towers. That is like some unbelievable country in Mm -hmm. the Wind River Range. Yeah. And so there are a couple other hikes I want to do over there this year. I want to go up in the Bighorns. Here in the Black Hills, we have Black Elk Wilderness. I want to explore that a little bit and kind of backpack there and a short weekend. And if I don't, if I'm unable to get like a four day, five day weekend, I'll stay in my own backyard and kind of explore that too. Yeah. The, if you go in the black elk and hike up the backside of Harney peak and well, black elk peak now, um, formerly Harney peak and you hike up the backside, it's, you know, if you hike from Sylvan mm-hmm. Lake, there's just like people everywhere, which, mm-hmm. you know, some people that doesn't bother. Um, me, I'd prefer to see nobody all the time. But um, if you hike up the backside, it's quite a, it's a longer hike. It's like 11 miles round mm-hmm. trip. But that's, I mean, you don't see anybody, and that can kind of be a fun. You can make a couple loops and, and yeah. add on a little bit, which is fun little backpacking trip in there. But, yeah, the Bighorns obviously are, are incredible as well, which that's just like a short three-hour drive mm-hmm. to some big, giant mountains. So you said you like to cook. Do you have, like, one thing that you're just like, this is my signature? Like, <laughs> if someone's coming over, I'm making this because I know it's going to be a crowd pleaser. I probably a few months ago, I found a recipe that I really like. It's uh, turkey sausage, broccoli, zucchini, and sweet potatoes. And then you put some garlic powder, salt, pepper, oregano, and parsley flakes on it. And you put it in the oven and bake it. And I feel like that's kind of my signature one right there. But I also, probably with cooking, I really enjoy grilling. So throwing a steak or chicken or making some kebabs or something like that on the grill, that's always my go-to if and I always say there's no bad weather for grilling so it can be 15 degrees outside and I'll be out grilling as long as it's not raining or snowing or super windy I'll grill whenever <laughs> yep I totally agree it's a do you have like a are you set up with the Traeger or is that still like a wish list item that's so, a wish list yeah, I have me one too. of the basic cheap grills that kind of get me by right now in my apartment on my balcony we're allowed to have them so it's kind of nice to just be able to go out and just throw something on there quickly. and Yeah, I feel like one when I get a Traeger, eventually, I say when, <laughs> when I get one, it's like that I'm going to feel like I've made it. Like yeah. I can cook whatever I need to cook. I've, I've made it to a point in my life where I'm like, I'm good to go. I got a Traeger. I'm happy. Okay, so reversing back to hiking, favorite, like just one-off favorite hike, whether it's Black Hills, Badlands, Wyoming, anywhere, Michigan, doesn't matter. Ooh, favorite to, hike. I know it's a tough one. If you had to just like pick one, what would you recommend? Of the ones I've been on, the Circuit of the Towers probably have to be my favorite hike. But that was a kind of a three-day, two-night backpacking trip to do about 28 miles. That was probably my favorite one. But if we're just talking about a general hike, I would probably go with a couple in Utah. One of them is, uh, I think it's called Devil's Garden, if I have the name right off the top of my head it's uh at arches national park it's about nine miles it's kind of a off the beaten path hike it's in the back country so you're climbing up some steep inclines and stuff like that but the views are amazing there's two three people you see within the eight nine miles of that hike there 
And then there's one in Canyonlands. It's uh, False Kiva. It's I recommend if you're familiar with hiking, like very familiar, and you can follow the trail that's basically rock. They have cairns, I think that's what they're called. You're, yeah, you're spot on. Okay. And you basically have to be very aware of where those are to follow the trail because you're just on red rock the whole time and there's not a beaten path on the rock or anything like that, but it leads to one of the most amazing views I've seen. Yeah. For those who are thinking like a cairn is some sort of animal or, or anything, <laughs> a cairn pretty much is just a, a small pile of rocks mm-hmm. that says, you know, they're usually put in places where, like you said, you're walking on a rocky trail the whole time. So they're not gonna be able to pound a post that says yeah. like you're on the trail, like the trail goes North, you know? So they put little piles of rocks along the way to let you know, like you're still on the right path mm-hmm. for sure. I'd say, I mean, Utah, I've never been, looks unbelievable, especially you're talking Arches National mm-hmm. Park and, and some of that stuff looks incredible. Um, I know there's some stuff in the Bighorns. I always uh, advocate for Little Devil's Tower, which yes. I like, don't want to give away any secrets, which is not too much of a secret, mm-hmm. but it, it's pretty short and the views are incredible. It's a fun little hike. Um, and you can also loop into some other like secret Black Hills treasures if you know where they're at uh, yeah. along the way. Um, but yeah, that's if, if I'm in the Black Hills, I think that's one that you always got to just like I throw out there because I think people are like mm-hmm. constantly going up um, Harney slash Black Elk Peak. And I think Little Devil's Tower gets forgot about. It's like, man, that's right there. It's just beautiful. Yeah. For a local hike, I'd definitely say Little Devil's Tower is probably one of my favorites. There's one up in Spearfish Canyon. It's called uh, An- Annie's Creek. I've never done that one. It's, uh, yeah, it was just one time I was Googling just like what kind of trails are up there because you have the main ones to, uh, I'm drawing a blank on. Well, you got 11th Hours Popular. You got um, 7th Calvary, I believe, is the one that goes like just straight up the canyon and then has the overlook. Devil's mm-hmm. Bathtub is, I would say, Devil's Bathtub is probably the the most popular one back in there. Yeah, Rufflock Falls is what I was trying to think of. You have oh, Rufflock yes. Falls, you have Spearfish Falls, Community Caves. Like those are the basic ones that I kind of stumbled upon, but I was like, there has to be something else up here. And so I found Annie's Creek. It's more, in, it's south of Savoy, so it's closer towards Cheyenne Crossing. Yep. There's a dirt road with probably best to do with higher clearance vehicle. Yep. I did it with a, a Grand Am. Made or, it through though? Yeah, and it was questionable at one point. But I made it through, and I have a different car now, so I feel I would feel more confident going up there. But it's a very interesting hike because you it's, a, it's just basically a cliff that goes straight down into, like, the creek, and then there's a small little waterfall. But there's a part that the trail is on, and you can actually climb down, like, these tree roots that are kind of sticking out. They're very sturdy and stuff. So I found that very cool about that hike and very unique. So that's why it's kind of one of my favorites up there. Interesting. That's, I, I think, touching kind of on the same feeling that you were getting at with that hike is when you've lived here for a little while, which, as like I said, I've only lived here for two or three years mm-hmm. now, but you find kind of the hidden beauty in mm-hmm. some of that stuff. Like anyone can drive down Needles Highway and go, look at that. It's just, yeah. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. But it's like you hike something that maybe not everyone's going on or maybe is like not quite as popular. And you look and you're like, look at that rock. Like that rock looks like a foot. How cool is mm-hmm. that? You know, and it's kind of fun little stuff like that where you notice once you've lived here for a while. Yeah. And you get to explore a little more. Yep. For sure. So um, being from Indiana, there's obviously a, a large difference in, you know, the way of life, I would assume. When you moved to the Black Hills, is there was there like a culture shock? Like, whoa, everyone drives Subarus here. What's going on? <laughs> or, like, was there any moment like that? Or was it, you know, like, oh, this kind of seems fairly similar from where I'm from? 
it's mostly similar in the fact of like what goes on here. The I guess the biggest difference for me was coming from Indiana where it's flat and you have a lot of cornfields. Granted, you do have some big cities here and there, but um, where I'm from, it's mostly flat and cornfields. But coming here and then just boom, you have the Black Hills right there. It's just like, whoa, okay, well, this is neat. And so that's one of the main reasons why it drew me back out west because I worked here two years after college, moved home for two years for a job in my hometown doing the morning show, and then about a couple months in after waking up at 1.30 in the morning to do the morning news, I was like, yeah, this really isn't for me. So I got through my contract there, and then I got much more reasonable hours out here in the evenings and just being back out west to hike and drive somewhere for a weekend if I need to and that's one of the big draws for me is just the difference of the Black Hills and then just kind of the flatland in Indiana. Yep, I would agree. I'm from a very flat part of Minnesota. I'm not from like the beautiful part mm-hmm. of northern Minnesota. I'm not saying where I'm from is not like a nice place, but it's not <laughs> yeah, it's not the North Shore. Um, and I remember I came out here and I said, like, you know, go out in the Black Hills. And we've been here a couple of times when I lived in Minnesota on vacation. So I kind of knew what, what I was getting into. Um, but I said, ah, you know, I'm going to go for a trail run. You know, people seem to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I drove up into the hills a little bit and started to run. And after about 500 yards, I was like, nope. <laughs> like just the elevation to yeah. me, I was like, oh, it just felt like an elephant was sitting on my chest. So I was like, that was probably the biggest one um, yeah. for me. It was like, oh, it's like hard to breathe here if you're not used to it. Right. You made it 500 yards farther than I would trail running. Yep. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> I was just like, I can't believe how winded I am. I was like, this is embarrassing. Yeah. It's funny because when I, Except the, the job out here back in 2014, told family and friends, and they were like, South Dakota, why there? And yeah, all that kind of stuff. And it just for me, I was just trying to get into the TV business. So the first job's always the hardest to get. Once oh, you get in sure. it, you can move on because you get better as you go. But um, my cousin and I were Googling Rapid City and kind of the Black Hills and the Badlands and everything. And we're like, wow, this is all so cool. Like the scenery out here is just incredible. And so once... I had friends visit. They were kind of blown away because a lot of people think South Dakota, the Dakotas, the plains, just flat. And then once you come here in western South Dakota, you've got the beauty of the hills. Man, I am a huge advocate for western South Dakota. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have I went to school in eastern South Dakota, and if there's definitely a place for that. And if you really like to hunt pheasants, like that's where you want to be. Mm-hmm. But western South Dakota is just, I think it just shocks people. It does. You drive through and you see the badlands, and it's like there's just like, there's not a whole lot of other places on earth that look like that. Like maybe it's not yeah. the biggest or the, but it's just like how interesting it is. And then of course the black Hills with the giant granite spires are so unique. And I think, yeah, it just kind of takes people by surprise. So maybe it is not, you know, the wind river range, but yeah. people come here and they're expecting Mount Rushmore mm-hmm. and then they see, Oh my goodness. Like look mm-hmm. at all this other stuff. So yeah, I'm always trying to like tell people it's like, it's not bad. I promise it's South Dakota, but it's not bad. It's a hidden gem. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I'd be a little remiss um, during this time if we didn't talk just like, briefly on COVID-19 mm-hmm. coronavirus. Can you guys talk about kind of what your process is at the station and, and what's going on um, on your end of things surrounding this whole kind of pandemic that we're experiencing? Yeah. So basically for the employees that can work from home are working from home. So for the most part, it's a lot of salespeople that we have working from home. Uh, kind of a difficult job for reporters and anchors and meteorologists like me and others to kind of work from home, but I've been, I usually come into work at about 2 PM on a normal day. If it's active for you winter. You just made so. a lot of people really jealous right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I come in at about two, if it's a little more active, it's about one, but we, I have a program on my computer to where I can log in remotely 
at work. And so doing that, it makes it nice that I can work from home until about 4 p.m., get everything ready, and then I have to get in at some point to do some recordings for a couple of teases that go on air, and then the web, the weather app kind of videos, all that kind of stuff, and then just get everything ready for what I can't do at home, and then I just go do the shows. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it's kind of, we seem to be obviously starting more and more, but uh, definitely the beginning stages of this mm-hmm. stuff. And South Dakota, obviously, we're a little more removed um, from all of it, but it's it's obviously coming. I think Rapid City's done a really good job, and South yeah. Dakota in general has done a really good job of kind of staying on top of things and um, being preemptive with what we have going on, which I'm sure is no different mm-hmm. with you guys at the station than it is with us here at Midwest Marketing. So, but other than that, I guess we can kind of wrap it up here. So, there's anything I didn't touch on and you want to like let the world know? I mean, please speak your piece now. Not that I can think of, but we did talk about it earlier about people interested in weather. My email is d stradling s t r a d l i n g at codatv.com if anyone listening would want to reach out and kind of talk about weather once this covid-19 stuff kind of settles down we could do like a station tour or a job shadow or something so feel yeah. free to reach out if you're interested or whatever or just have any general questions yeah which i said the same exact thing when chris gross um the general manager of k evn and kota was on i said i got the station tour um when i first started here it is awesome. Mm-hmm. Like you guys are in a great spot and, and um, very, I know I'm, when I came here for college, I said like, you looked at the news, um, not to bash on the Sioux Falls news, but you looked at the news out of Sioux Falls and it looked like the Minnesota news, but back in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And you came here and I looked at your station, you watch your news and it's like, that looks state of the art. Like you guys really have an awesome station and awesome setup. So not trying to toot your own horn for you, <laughs> but it is, it's very, it's very cool. So I would recommend a station tour and to see what um, you guys have going on there at KVN and KOTA. It's beautiful. We're blessed to have such a nice station, brand new station. It's a few years old now, but yeah, it's just a gorgeous spot. The being on Skyline Drive is beautiful unless there's a snowstorm and that kind of gets a little nightmarish, but uh, yep. yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, hey, other than that, uh, thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. I think people are going to find this fascinating. I know I did. And uh, other than that, thanks for listening, guys.